Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 3. This is the word of God. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you that we get to be here to to learn from the best teacher who ever was. And we pray this morning that as Jesus teaches his original audience, that he would teach each of us here as well. Soften our hearts, open our minds, uh, change us, we pray, forever, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, some of the passages that we've looked at in Matthew, including some parables, have been real head-scratchers. I even think of the last passage that I taught on when I was up here that required a lot of study, a lot of consideration. We had to search together to find the full meaning. Well, not so today. In fact, James Montgomery Boyce says, that problem does not exist with the parables in Matthew 21 that we looked at last week and 22. The parable of the two sons, the parable of the wicked tenant farmers, and the parable of the wedding banquet. On the contrary, they are all too clear. Above all, the parable of the banquet we'll look at today. The words and the pictures are simple because Jesus wants them to be simple, obvious, even unavoidable. Jesus is a great teacher. And you know that part in a movie where you're yelling at the person, the character in the movie, and you are saying something like this. What are you doing? Or maybe, no, 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 no. No, this, this, uh, why would you walk away? Turn around. Have you ever seen Turn around. The person that you're looking for is, is right there. Well, that is exactly what Jesus wants our reaction to be as we read this parable. He doesn't want anyone to leave saying, is there a double meaning in that? No, he wants it to be clear and captivating. Now, the Jewish leaders in his original audience understood that in the parable of the two sons, Jesus is calling them out as those who promise to obey God but do nothing. And in the parable of the tenants, that Israel are the tenants given a perfect vineyard who then refuse to pay rent, kill the owner's servants, and even the heir. And in our main section today, Jesus makes it agonizingly clear. You're repeatedly invited by God to come to his eternal feast and kingdom. And yet, sadly, most of you refuse the invitation. Or will try to sneak in on your own merit. But God cannot be fooled. And eventually, the door to his kingdom will close forever. His patience will turn to judgment. Both sections that we'll look at today 
are about action. The first is about responding. And the second is about rendering. So that's why I chose our title for today. In the second section about rendering, or we could say repaying, we'll look at the first of three attempts by a group to trap Jesus. And it's a very unlikely combo of attackers here between the disciples of the Pharisees and a group called the Herodians that are trying to trap Jesus in a double bind. And I'll explain when we get there what that means. But I love that what Boyce calls this odd gang of attackers an unholy alliance. And we'll see Jesus not only escape their trap, but teach about the legitimate God-given authority of civil government as well as its limits. We'll see again what a great teacher Jesus is. So we'll get to that later, but point number one in your outline, God's wedding invitations. Let's read verses one through seven together. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, One to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. So a king is throwing a country, I'm sorry, yeah, a countrywide celebration for his son who's getting married. Now, this celebration would have lasted multiple days. And you needed to get your invitation weeks ahead of time, just as we get wedding invitations well in advance now. No one invites you the day of, hoping you can make it to the wedding. So imagine being invited to a royal wedding or a superstar's wedding months in advance. Everyone would jump on the chance to join a lavish feast and celebration. In fact, anticipation would be building every day. Mouths are watering. What surprises, what delicacies do they have in store for us? And then finally, when it was time to start, the king sends his servants to tell his guests that the time has come. Now, no one had watches or clocks back then, so you'd send your servant out to say, it's ready. The feast is ready. And that's how it always went. And the audience at this point listening to the story is smiling, leaning in. Everyone loves thinking about getting invited to a feast, right? But strange things happen in parables. They grab our attention. They make us think. It's clear that those who were invited agreed initially. That makes sense. And the king's servants go out saying, okay, it's time. And they say, no, I've got other things to do. Now, the king here is incredibly patient. He makes sure that there is no misunderstanding. It could not be more clear. I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. I mean, he's going into gory detail to make it clear that the feast is ready. Everything is ready, he says. Come to the wedding feast. And how do they respond? To our shock, Some refuse. 
in letter 1A in your outline. Craig Keener speaks to how this would have landed on the original audience. Hearers of the parable would marvel at the treasonous, foolishness, and impudence of those who would insult a king. They would not come. They paid no attention. In fact, they seized, treated shamefully, and killed the servants who were inviting them to a feast. Leon Morris adds in his commentary that no urgency is suggested. Jesus is citing typical shallow excuses to bring out the point that the impolite guests had no real reason for staying away from the banquet. They simply did not care. And others believed they could do to the king and his messengers anything they wished. They had no respect for the king and no fear of him. Well, how does the king respond to this? Verse 7, the king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Yikes, what does this mean? The king's vast patience is finally exhausted. He judges them. And this judgment here is a clear allusion to the forthcoming destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. I want you to remember that Jesus is so saddened at how Israel's leaders have treated him in recent days. Describing Jesus' life as a whole, the Apostle John says this, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And Matthew has given us the details. Keener points out that in the parable, the violence here is both realistic and unrealistic. It's realistic in that after an insult like the one the invitees have made against the king's honor, nothing less than such vengeance as verse 7 depicts would satisfy his honor. Yet, he says, it is unrealistic to suppose that the king would engage in a military expedition while the food was getting cold. Because the story is meant to climax on the second group that we're about to get to, the second group of invitees, however, it must narrate the annihilation of the rebels at this point. So Jesus, in effect, fast forwards to show us the end of the story for the rebels and then rewinds back to the feast. So letter 1B in your outline, some rely on Jesus. Let's read verses 8 through 10. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. The story has gotten even crazier here as the king sends out his servants to invite literally anyone to his feast. In fact, he specifically sends them out to the main highway going out of the city. This is where poor people, maybe bad people would tend to congregate. So he has no filter on location. He specifically says, invite as many as you find. So there's no filter on the number to invite. The servants bring back both bad and good, we're told. So there's clearly no filter by the king on morality. The whole spectrum of humanity is called. Put another way, no person that you can think of or imagine is not called, not invited. And the wedding hall is not half full. It's filled with guests, every seat taken. 
John MacArthur rightly says this illustrates the free offer of the gospel, which is extended to all indiscriminately. God, the King of Kings, has a plan that will not be thwarted, and he's filling his eternal kingdom with every kind of person you can think of. People like you and me. Maybe we look pretty good on the outside. Or maybe we look pretty bad. People from any background, any race, any income, any talent, any looks, any physical or mental or emotional health, he doesn't weed you out based on anything that's been done to you. And he doesn't weed you out based on anything that you've done to others. All are invited. And there's no cost. It's a wedding feast, and you don't even need to bring a gift. All are invited. Just respond by coming to God through Jesus and be saved. Rely on Jesus. Now, the parable could end there. And uh, Luke tells a similar version of a parable, probably told it another time in Luke 14, that actually does end there. So let me read it to you. It has a few other details, uh, but it ends right at this point. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city. Bring in the poor and the crippled and blind and lame. So here we see, again, no discrimination. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and there's still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet." But on the occasion where Matthew's retelling the story, remember, to a group of self-righteous, religious people, Jesus gives one more crucial lesson in his parable. Let's read verses 11 through 14. This is letter 1C in your outlines. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. Okay, so wait a second. I've just been expounding to you all about the indiscriminate invitation that goes to everyone, all filtered, unfiltered to come to him. And this seems like the opposite, right? I mean, and pretty harsh. What's going on? Why the change here? Well, as the king surveys his banquet hall, there's something about this man that stands out to him. Something looks different. So he walks over and he asks, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? Or we could say, how did you manage to slip by the porters at the doors? This question allows for clarification of misunderstanding, an explanation. But verse 12 says that he was speechless. He had no excuse. So the matter is not one merely of misunderstanding. Listen to John MacArthur on this. I think this is so good. All without exception were invited to the banquet. So this man is not to be viewed as a common party crasher. In fact, all the guests were rounded up hastily from the roads, and therefore none could be expected to come 
with proper attire. That means the wedding garments were supplied by the king himself. So this man's lack of a proper garment indicates he had purposely rejected the king's own gracious provision. His affront to the king was actually a greater insult than those who refused to come at all because he committed his impertinence in the very presence of the king. He goes on to say the imagery seems to represent those who identify with the kingdom externally. They profess to be Christians, belong to the church in a visible sense, yet spurn the garment of righteousness that Christ offers by seeking to establish a righteousness of their own. Ashamed to admit their own spiritual poverty, they refuse the better garment that the king graciously offers, and thus they're guilty of a horrible sin against his goodness. Some refuse to come. Some rely on Jesus. Listen to what Isaiah 61.10 says about this second group. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. But some rely on self. They want to be accepted as is, without any forgiveness for their sins. But Isaiah 64, 6 tells us that we have all We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Romans 3.10 says, none is righteous, no, not one. And Jesus himself in this parable says that the person who tries to enter his kingdom based on personal merit will be cast into outer darkness, a place of pain and torment, a common description by Jesus for eternal judgment. Jesus closes this parable by saying that many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called. This has been described as the doctrine of general calling. The gospel is proclaimed to all people everywhere, both those who will believe and those who will not. However, Paul mentions another kind of calling, an effective calling from God that comes powerfully to individuals and brings a positive response. So when the gospel is proclaimed, only some are effectively called. That is, those who are the elect who respond with true faith. This is consistent with what Jesus says right here, that few are chosen. So it's not a surprise to Jesus that when God's wedding invitations go out, many refuse Many rely on self, and few rely on him. Everyone does not go to heaven when they die, as much as we may want them to. God fills our lives with invitations and second chances. But Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So, Respond today. Rely on Jesus. We'll spend some more time applying this later on at the end. But let's look now at point number two in your outline. Jesus versus the double bind. Before I read the verses, 15 through 22, I'll read a couple of definitions of this term double bind. What do I mean by that anyway? Why do I think that's just perfect for this part of our passage? Well, 
Oxford Languages says, a double bind is a situation in which a person is confronted with two irreconcilable demands or a choice between two undesirable courses of action. I love Merriam-Webster, which defines it as a psychological predicament in which a person receives from a single source conflicting messages that allow no appropriate response to be made. And this unholy alliance of Pharisees and Herodians have put their heads together and they've come up with just such a double bind for Jesus. And just as many in our own country, no doubt, are gearing up to do to each other in the upcoming election, these attackers want to force Jesus to commit political suicide. So, with that as our backdrop, let's start reading in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. You do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. So the leaders start by buttering him up, and then they lob in a politics grenade. But as Dan Doriani notes, despite their evil intent, I love this, their flattery is actually valid praise. Jesus is true and teaches truthfully. He does not rein in his remarks because he wonders what someone will think. He's consistent. He has integrity. He is fearless. He's not swayed by men and pays no attention to who they are. He refuses to compromise to please or placate his audience because powerful people do not frighten him. Nonetheless, how will Jesus answer these religious Pharisees in training and this Roman-backed political party of Herodians. Well, the poll tax that they're referencing was the most hated of all the taxes. It's because it suggested that Rome owned even the people. It was a tax on the people that it owned. And of course, the Jews viewed themselves as possessions of God. So, if Jesus says, no, don't pay it, then group one, the Herodians, would charge him with treason against Rome. On the other hand, if he says, yes, pay the tax, then the Pharisees would accuse him of disloyalty to the Jewish nation, and his crowds would turn on him. Now, notice they have phrased the question to demand a yes or no answer. It's as if the answer must be binary. But Jesus knows that the answer actually calls for discernment. So here's how it goes. Jesus holds up a coin that they hand him. And he says, whose likeness is this? George Washington. Okay, that might not help us as much. So let's imagine that this is a denarius. And he holds up this simple coin. Whose likeness is this? Caesar's, they say. 
Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And then at this point, they marvel at his answer. But what exactly does it mean? I found Doriani's commentary very helpful here. Very helpful. When Jesus says, give or pay to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, he calls for discernment. The verb translated give or pay is not the normal term for give or pay that he uses here. To be more precise, the verb apodidomai actually means to repay. By using that term rather than the generic word for paying or giving the tax, just didomai, Jesus hints that the payment of the tax merely means to return to Caesar what is his. We must give the government its due, that is respect and taxes, but we must not give what it is not due. A believer will not call Caesar or any man God or Savior. We give to God what is his, our worship and supreme allegiance. So their mistake was buried in their own hearts and minds as they asked this question because they lacked discernment. It looked like black and white to them, yes or no. Either I'm a citizen of God's and I obey him, or I'm a citizen of this evil Roman empire. But the discerning Jew would understand that they are actually dual citizens. And God is pleased when we submit to him and submit to the civil government, even a very unfair one we could certainly call the oppressive Roman captors. Another way to look at it is this. It's like overlapping layers of authority that God has put over us. The ESV study Bible explains that Jesus is not establishing a political kingdom that's in opposition to Caesar. So his followers should pay taxes and obey civil laws. There are matters that belong to the realm of civil government. There are other matters that belong to God's realm. Jesus does not here specify which matters belong in which realm, but many Christian ethicists today teach that in general, Civil government should allow freedom in matters of religious doctrine, worship, and beliefs about God. And the church should not attempt to use the power of government to enforce allegiance to any specific religious viewpoint. All forms of the Christian church throughout the world today support some kind of separation between matters of church and matters of state. By contrast, totalitarian governments usually try to suppress the church and subsume everything under the realm of the state. Okay, so the front of this coin has Caesar's image. However, very interestingly, the back of the coin had an inscription, which read Pontifex Maximus, and that meant high priest, the highest priest. So using this simple coin, Jesus could break apart their false dichotomy And he could say, give to the government, repay to the government their due, but also save and hold and give, not everything. Give to God what is God's. No wonder they marveled and they went away at this teaching. Now, I think it would be easy for us at this point, as I did as I read this, to shake our heads in sadness at these people in Jesus' day. But it's harder and much better 
to apply what we've learned to our lives. So let's do that. Letter A, you've been invited to the feast. Now remember, Jesus wants this parable that we looked at to be super clear and easy for you to understand. The parable is not just a story. It's certainly not a fable. It's a simple story that's used to illustrate a spiritual lesson about real life. There's nothing make-believe here. Nothing should confuse you. You, my friend, have been personally invited by the creator and the king of the universe to his feast. And today, you have God's wedding invitation in your hand. So question number one, are you refusing to come? Why not come today? What excuse do you have? How many times has the king patiently invited you? And yet, are you going about business and life as usual, as if you had not been invited by him? God is patient, and he wants to clear up any misunderstanding. So he's brought you here this morning, and he's brought me, a simple servant here today, to tell you again. And here is his message to you. It's time for you to come to the wedding feast. I'm ready, you say. How do I come? What do I do? Well, first, look at your life and admit that you have many stains of disobedience. You know you've not lived a perfect life. You've not followed all of God's commands. Romans 3 makes it very clear in verse 19 that every mouth that relies on following the law will be stopped, just like in the parable. The whole world will be held accountable to God. And verse 20 starts, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. You may be a really, really good person. I'm not even arguing that at all. In fact, James Boyce says, You don't have to murder a prophet to miss out. You only have to fritter away your time on things that will eventually pass away. And thus, let your opportunities for repentance and faith pass by. So don't, with joy welling up in your heart, just as those invited in the parable, tell God that you're happy for him to clean and clothe you in his spiritual perfection. Tell him that you believe that when his son, God, Jesus, the Messiah, came and died, he took your filthy rags and gave you his perfect righteousness so that, just like in the parable, you could come and take your seat at the table. You're not imposing at all. Jesus himself has offered this as a picture. Believe and accept his gift and your soul is secure forever. Don't refuse to come. Don't be the character in the story that makes us cry out, what are you doing? No, 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 no. Why, why are you walking away? Turn around. The one you're looking for is right behind you. Collapse in his arms and let him carry you to the feast. Question number two. Are you properly pumped? Are you properly excited? Now, many of you here have RSVP'd to the wedding. You're planning to go. You're ready for Jesus to return and take you home. But your initial excitement has sort of waned over these last few years. Allow me to remind you 
that this is not just a story. There will be a wedding and a marriage festival one day. We should look forward to and anticipate and find hope for today in the truth that soon, dressed in pure white, we'll be diving into the feast with holy abandon. Spurgeon reminds us, dear friends, when the Lord saved some of us by his grace, it was no common event. When he brought us great sinners to his feet and washed us and clothed us and fed us and made us his own, it was a wonder to be talked of forever and ever. We will never leave off praising his name throughout eternity. I believe that remembering the muck that we unworthy sinners were lifted from and looking forward to God's wedding feast with us, not just invited, but we, we find out in the story as the prince's spotless bride is one of the best things that we can meditate on. In fact, a few years ago, I, I finished writing a fairly long story for my daughter. And I titled it, The Prince's Bride. Not The Princess Bride. The Prince's Bride. Because I wanted her, I don't know what lies ahead, but I wanted her to always have a powerful, true story about herself. To hold onto in life's darkest nights here in this life. You know, my daughter was not spiritually beautiful on her own when she was born. But she is now. Because she belongs to the prince forever. And I'd like to read just two really short excerpts from this longer story to you. And my prayer is that you will put your name into this story. And realize that it's true. And that that truth will give you strength for today. And bright hope for tomorrow. Wrapping herself quickly in her shawl, she stumbled out into the dark night. Everything around her was fuzzy, dim, and disappearing. Her entire body trembled and hurt, and her strength was failing as quickly as her sight. And she wanted to run, but feared she might end up running in the wrong direction. She tripped on an invisible rock, seemingly opposed to her progress, and fell onto another, knocking the wind out of her lungs. But the prince, fearful of nothing and compassionate to all, called out, Let me through, and strode forward. He kneeled and reached out calmly to touch it. His hand found the edge of the mud-covered material and pulled it back to reveal a human face, though it was barely recognizable. You don't know me, but I met you two weeks ago. I'm much changed now, so you won't recognize me, she began. I am Sophia, one of the princess's servants. Your suffering has been great, she nodded. I felt fine at first. I doubted your words. I took my chances, and now they're taking me. Death flows in your veins, that is true. But it has not taken you yet, the prince replied, taking her mummy-like hand in his. No, but soon, she replied. No one can save me now, but at least I have the consolation of asking for your forgiveness. My heart is desperately sick. I thought it would pass. I hoped I could beat it on my own. I was wrong. Please forgive me. You were right all along. I am not worthy of your grace to even speak to me. 
But I remember your gentle and compassionate eyes, and your kindness gives me courage. And immediately, the prince plunged his hands into the reeking mud beneath her and lifted her gently but powerfully in his arms. Tears of compassion rolled down his face, and he shouted, I choose Sophia as my bride. In wonder, the jaws of every one of the prince's attendants fell open. Even after a lifetime of being in his presence, watching his gracious ways, they froze in stunned silence at this declaration. And then, like the slow rising of the sun at dawn, they realized that they had still underestimated the richness of his compassion and mercy. Skipping farther ahead, she barely caught sight of the city when someone announced that the king was riding out to meet her. Immediately, Sophia felt a pit in her stomach. Oh no, she thought, he won't allow me to marry his son. I'm a total disaster. I haven't even washed. But then, catching her completely by surprise, she found herself caught up in the powerful arms of the king. She knew she was safe forever when he took her grubby face in both of his hands and said, Welcome home, my dear daughter. And then he grinned and added, You've been in these rags long enough. My son has healed you inside. It's time your outside matched. They burned her old clothes. Then came the softest, cleanest, whitest dress you can imagine. So white it glowed, so clean that its very nature refused to exist with a speck of dust. And so soft that Sophia wanted to cry when she touched it and actually held up the fabric to her face and whispered, Thank you. As she lowered the marvelous cloth, she was startled by a perfect creature looking back at her in the mirror, copying her every move. She furrowed her brow, staring at herself. The image was unmistakably her, that was obvious, and yet she had not only been made clean, the prince had made her new. She let out a stifled laugh and covered her mouth with her hand as she realized she couldn't deny it. She was perfect. And not just her reflection, the perfection reached to the deepest corners of her soul. She felt joy without pride and delight without superiority because even as she stared at her perfect self, her heart marveled only at the one who had loved her into unending bliss. The gentle tap on her shoulder and then a gentle voice. Sophia, it's time. Your wedding day has come. Follow me. You must be ready when the prince arrives. With a swishing swirl of her shimmering dress, they swept her through her jewelry selection and down a towering spiral staircase and into a small chamber. Wait here, she was advised. As many days and nights as it takes, she replied gladly. Oh, honey, there aren't going to be any nights here, she was told. As she considered this, Smiling to herself for a few minutes, a door on the other side of the room opened and a man beckoned her out into the brilliant afternoon. As her eyes adjusted, she saw the multitudes dressed in white, all around her and extending up in the concentric circles of the city. A dozen paces behind her, an enormous gate began to creak and open and she saw her prince in all his glory for the first time, just as I told you earlier in my story. I promised you this was going to be a story 
about the best party ever. And you've been very patient. Let the feast begin. It is real. It is yours. And it is mine. And it will be here before we know it. These are the promises that are true and what has been accomplished for us if we rely on Jesus. Let us look forward to and long for this. Which leads us to question number three. Christian, have you invited anyone to the feast lately? Are you happy that you have a place at the table in your white garment? Happy to leave it at that? How? You will be able to enjoy this for eternity. And your time now is very short, and you're not going to get a second back. It is not a heavy burden to invite people to the feast. It's not your job to even get them there just to invite them. What more blessed thing could there be than sitting down to the feast, every seat filled, and the one next to you by someone that you invited to be there? The Almighty will not be vanquished. Jesus will not have died in vain. Every seat will be filled. Who will be sitting there because you are an obedient servant when he commanded you, go out and invite anyone you find. One more question for you in closing. Letter B in your outline. You have a dual citizenship. Are you discerning or are you trapped by a false dichotomy? Craig Keener says, to render to Caesar what was Caesar's was to return his own coin to him. To render to God What was God's was to render worship to him alone. Neither the image nor the superscription on coins could prevent Jewish people's single-minded devotion to God. Nor did the coin have this effect. Further, Jesus undoubtedly challenged the idea that his opponents needed to hold on to the coins at all. Why not return them to Caesar? What are the coins of Caesar in your life? What is it that's placing you in a false double bind where you think you're stuck? You like the idea of single-minded devotion to God, but you think it's impossible to give him that priority while still carrying your burdens and demands in this life. Now, I know how heavy burdens, like a heavy tax, are in this life, and yours are probably heavier than mine. But are they heavier than the brutal Roman rule over the Jews? If not, what earthly authority are you bucking under the guise of submitting to God? Be like one of the Pharisees' disciples. Now, you never thought you'd hear that, so let me clarify. Here's what I mean. I dare you to ask Jesus right now, how can I submit to this authority or this circumstance and still be faithful to you, God. You're expecting to stump him. You feel it's binary, an either-or situation, right? Well, how would he answer you? Return to whoever it is what you owe him or her and return to God what you owe him. Put it another way, what would you be embarrassed to find in your harder hand 
when Jesus tells you, you know, you could always return it. You could just drop it. Let it go. Please stand with me in prayer. We need God's help in all these things to live for him. And the good news is that he loves to help us. So let's pray. First of all, God, we must cry out in thanksgiving for your invitation. We were those in the gutters. We were those in filthy rags, those who were not initially invited. And to us here today, you have extended your invitation and you have patiently, repeatedly invited many here. May we answer yes and rely only on the perfect garments that you, Lord Jesus, secured for us when you died in our place and forgave us. And with excitement and expectation, help us to go forward into whatever awaits us out there in this world with a hope and a joy and a building sense of anticipation that soon, soon we will be at the wedding feast with you. Encourage us, give us courage to invite others as you've commanded us to join us freely at the feast. They don't need to bring a gift. There's no perfect cleanness or clothing they can provide just to rely on you as we have. And God, lastly, help us to not be trapped by excuses that we make up, reasons that we have that feel so just good and believable in our own hearts of why we can't really actually live wholeheartedly in worship and devotion to you. Help us to let go of whatever it is of this, this world that we picture through this coin, these things that burden us and distract us. Help us to return it to the world and not let it take claim of ownership over our hearts. Let us direct that to you and to you alone. Help us in these things, we ask, with great hope and thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen.